Our story begins 25 years ago, in a distant land filled with magic, anthropomorphic beavers, conflicted dragons, and all sorts of other fantastical creatures. Every intelligent creature in the world heard The Voice, a psychic broadcast that promised unlimited wealth and power to whoever could break the Seven Seals. The Voice sparked a brief golden age of adventuring, with people of every cut of cloth traveling around the world trying to find out exactly what these Seven Seals were. Then war broke out between the dominant nation, the Red Kingdom, and the Unjanath, a secretive, isolationist culture of elves who lived in a forgotten, far-off corner of the world. That war waged on for nearly 20 years, with no one understanding how it started, until finally a peace treaty, brokered by Princess Ravello Red, brought an end to the hostilities. The princess disappeared shortly thereafter, and then the Unjanath retreated from their home, that remote corner of the world known as the Outlands. That brings us to today, where the Outlands Exploratory Company seeks to catalog the Outlands and uncover its secrets, discover its true nature, battle the powerful foes that live there, and simply try to stay alive week from week. Welcome back to the Outlands, everyone. My name is Christian Hoffer, and you are listening to the second episode of Tales from the Outlands. This week, I am joined, as always, by Luke Herr, who is our producer extraordinaire. Oh, go on. <laughs> and uh, this week, we're also joined by Paul Henry, who is another player in our campaign. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes, it's it's good to have you on. Paul is one of the, um, he was one of the earliest members of uh, the Outlands campaign, um, and I've actually been playing D&D with him for on and off for like five years now, for as long as I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> so he is, he is one of the my original players. Um, Arguably so- a captain of the terror team as well. Uh, you know, no one, no one doubts that you are one of the hearts of this campaign, um, as everyone, I think, has an opinion about Yalmir. But we'll talk more about Paul's character in a little bit. Uh, for those of you who, uh, if this is your first episode of Tales from the Outlands, this is a unique D&D, D&D podcast. Wow, I can't even say the word right. You can tell what sort of week it's been. While most D&D podcasts are either like live you know let's play campaigns or um more like dnd news or dnd mechanics uh can uh podcasts this is neither this is a recap of a very interesting dnd campaign that i am the dungeon master of uh it is a west marches style campaign uh in which we have a pool of 18 players uh all 18 players play every single week, sometimes multiple times a week. Um, and they are exploring the strange uh, region known as the Outlands. Um, 
If you want to learn more about the Outlands, uh, we have a pilot, episode zero, I don't know what we're calling it, which recaps the campaign to date. But we like to start off our podcasts by talking about some of the sessions that we've recently had. Uh, This week, we'll be covering two weeks worth of sessions. So let's dive right in. Um, And the first one we're going to talk about is the reason, actually, why I invited Paul to this recording. And that is to talk about the retrieval of the Thunderplate. So, Paul, what happened? What is the Thunderplate, I guess, is the first question that I shall pose to you. Okay, so the uh, Thunderplate was actually uh, the armor worn by the spirit lord Falcon, which is uh, one of the kind of like primary gods of the pantheon of the Outlands. So, so the Thunderplate really was meant to be part of a, uh, a quest line for one of the clerics in our party, who is a worshiper of Cord who in our campaign is one of the children of Falcon. Um, in a moment of prayer, in, in uh, you know, reaching out to his god, the cleric was told to um, go and find my father's armor, don my father's armor and return it to his resting place or something very similar to that. No, yeah, that's, that's basically the gist of it. So um, we found out that the armor was actually contained in the uh, um, bank in, oh, I'm going to murder the name, Unjital? Uh, Untal Valora. Untal Valora is the name of that city. Untal Valora. I'm sorry. Um, But the only way to uh, uh, retrieve the armor was to deposit a seal. And so in the uh, previous uh, set of missions, um, the Outlands Exploratory Company was able to retrieve the seal from the Elemental Plane of Air, also uh, kind of Falcon's realm. Um, So after discussing it with the the entire group, we kind of decided that that was the direction we wanted to go. And so uh, the seal was deposited, and like every typical D&D session, it's not just you deposit something and you get something. It was uh, you deposit something, and then you're going through uh, essentially, you know, uh, uh, a test of... For this one, I I, I would say it it was a lot of uh, strategy, to be honest. Um, it was, yeah. Th- this was probably the most complicated map I've ever played on in D&D. Um, and as Christian said, you know, you, you've been my DM for probably the past, you know, four or five years. But prior to that, I've played with uh, other people as well. Um, how many teleportation circles were there? Oh, geez. So uh, this was uh, a map filled with floating platforms. I actually have the map right here because I'm like super proud of it. (laughs) And so it just sits on my desk. Um, So it was uh, the challenge took place in a room filled with 12 floating platforms. Uh, The armor was located on top of like a, a big pole in the middle of like the largest platform, which was platform five. And the only way you can move from platform to platform 
because these are level five players. So not a lot of uh, flying ability or teleportation ability uh, between them. Uh, there were uh, teleportation circles, multiple teleportation circles. It was very much like a video game setup. And so I think there were about, I'm looking at the map and there's probably about 40 teleportation circles and each teleportation circle led to a different, it, it was a maze. It, it led to uh, different platforms. Yeah. So the, um, the, a little bit more of a condensed version is there was one path you could take out of these 40 teleportation circles. And our party took 39 different paths and not the one that we needed to take. Um, the cleric that this really was kind of his quest to, to follow um, did a very good job in real life kind of mapping uh, the areas that we did not go through. And so um, we kind of were talking through it during the game and I was the first one to reach the platform where, where the armor was located. Um, during that time, I, I, to be perfectly honest, I was just going to sit there and wait until the other people could get there. Um, but we had a very enthusiastic druid that night. My, my wife, Darcy. <laughs> there was a switch on the platform that obviously, like, you know... It meant something. And so our druid um, summoned a goose that actually hit the switch. When the switch was hit, all the teleportation circles went away. On this final platform, uh, my character was stranded with two stags made of lightning. And in kind of uh, uh, what we've discussed and what, you know, the, the Outlands mythology, uh, that's kind of what happened to Falcon, is he was facing these uh, lightning stags, also uh, uh, kind of known as like the Heralds and Barum mm -hmm. uh, uh, Barum. And he was actually struck down by these, uh, uh, by these stags. So uh, my character was stranded there. No one could get to me. No one could heal me. And I was killed. But this was kind of part of a... Uh, uh, it, it, it was essentially reenacting the... I, I don't want to say it like as a passion play. That, that, that feels wrong to me. But, but it was uh, essentially following the the uh, footsteps of what Falcon did in his kind of like protection of the Outlands. It was never meant to be me. I was never supposed to be on the platform. And I was killed. But I wasn't really killed. I, 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 I woke up um, and I was wearing the armor of Falcon, the uh, Thunderplate. Um, and I also received a terrible lightning strike scar on half my body and yeah that that was an uh, a very intense session that ended with us finally getting what our uh, uh goal was and um 
it just went to the wrong person. <laughs> but in true, you know, working together and, and you know, it, it was never meant for me. I, I gave it to to the cleric that, that came here for the uh, for the Thunderblade. So did you when did you realize that, you know, because you you seem to when we were playing through this. I feel like you kind of figured out what was going to go down there when you got stranded on the platform with these two stags made of lightning. Uh, what was going through your thought? Like, you know, when, when one, it was pretty hilarious because it was Darcy who stranded you there. Um, and two, um, like, did, did you, did you kind of guess that, you know, you were supposed to reenact, um, Barum Barum's death, or not Barum Barum's death, Falcon's death. Yes, and I, it, I can't remember exactly what it was that the guardian in the bank told us before we started. But it, I feel like it was essentially, you know, follow the path that had to uh, that occurred at that time. Um, but I, I really can't remember the exact words. Well. I warned you guys that as so the this bank that this takes place in this ancient bank um, as Falcon is the spirit lord um, he's kind of left these spirits um, one of which is the this you know basically embodiment of a bank and he's a bit of a prick um, because bankers and I say this as I am one are are kind of pricks. Um, but he, he warned the party that this was not the sort of encounter that you could win by brute force and to remember the history of Falcon, remember what he did here in the outlands. Right. Okay. But also remember when we were told to enter into the void without fear and like all the party tried to do that. Yeah, no, you, 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 um, I am. So Luke references um, what might have been like my most devious D&D thing uh, yet. So the Guardian of the Bank told Luke's group, um, which is the, the Sunday group, which we affectionately call the Buddy Brigade, that in order to retrieve the seal of air, uh, one must enter the void willingly and without hesitation. So when the party encountered a Guardian with a void for a head, the entire party tried to jump into his head. The key to that brittle, so to speak, was that only one person needed to enter or should enter. And because the entire group tried to enter, they got flung like elsewhere into the elemental plane of air. Except um, for one person who asked for permission. If everyone else wasn't just following Cleaver, it would have been fine. But we're not here to talk about that. Um. Yeah, so, uh, but Yalmir came away with a thunder plate in that. Um, you know, it was a pretty, pretty substantial moment in part because, you know, we've got kind of these like quest lines that are ongoing. And, you know, uh, uh, probably about, I want to say a third of the players have like their own personal quest going on within the campaign. And that was the first time, and we've been playing now for, um, nine months going on 10 um, that real substantial progress had been made towards one of those, one of those personal quest lines. At least personally for uh, me as a player, one of the other things that, that occurred that I don't know if it's been mentioned yet. I, I know uh, 
the death of Claudius Dragonbane has been talked about. Oh, yeah. But one of the things that um, kind of uh, uh, made Claudius Dragonbane unique is he had this amazing, uh, like, ancestral greatsword that was part of his family's history, and its name is Wormheart. And at this point in time, my character had been carrying it around because uh, the story behind Wormheart is I was supposed to find somebody that was worthy of carrying it. And at that point in time, when when I knew my character was essentially going to die, Hjalmir kind of pulled forth the blade and set it in front of him and said, you know, look, if this is the sacrifice I have to make to save the Outlands, the same that Falcon did, this is what I'll do. And that was the first time that the sword spoke to him. Where that where that goes in the future, who knows? But at least something happened at that point in time. Yes, Wormheart was revealed to be an intelligent sword. Yeah, uh, I, I'm kind of surprised. I this all of this occurred right before the holidays, so you know, um, getting some of the games in has been a little bit um, interesting, shall we say? But I, I'm really curious to see what happens with Wormheart next, because that was one like the big things when I sat down and made this campaign. Um, you know, that was like one of the big things I was uh, some of the NPCs were originally going to have bigger roles in this campaign. You know, Claudius being one of them. And they just that, you know, how campaigns go. Um, they never go the way you expect. And so Claudius just kind of sat on the bench for a long time. And we, I decided to kill him off because he wasn't doing anything. Um, but I'm glad that his, you know, intelligent sword, uh, which had laid dormant um, for decades, um, you know, has seemingly come back to life. Um, but we'll, we'll probably talk a little bit more about Wormheart. And uh, we will talk a lot more about Falcon, the spirit lord, uh, later tonight. Um, but, um, let's, uh, let's move on to the next session, which, um, uh, Luke's character Cleaver actually participated in. And that was, um, the first, the trial, first trial of stone, the first trial of stone. So tell us a little bit about that, Luke. So last time on Tales from the Outlands, we talked about how the buddy brigade had gone to visit their vampire, friend Cartram who lived in a tower and one of the things that we discovered was a link to what was called the Twisted Caves which was potentially linked to a seal. Christian could be just prepping a whole big bait and switch on us but we decided to return this time not entirely telling Cartram who was interested in the seals and is trying to make his own what was down there and along the way, after killing one of the ghosts that has cursed Latorin. Oh, yeah, we, we did take care of that. Latorin is the Buddy Brigade's uh, bard. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, prior to, uh, well, we talked about that last week, didn't we? Yeah. Okay, yeah. She has a curse on her. We need to kill six ghosts, and we've killed four of them as of the week that, we, or we have killed two of them as of the week that we're talking about. Yep. So we re returned to the Twisted Caves, and it turned out to be part of what is called the Trials of Stone, which is all about essentially a like video game level where 
if you ever quit and want to tap out of the trials of stone you'll be tossed out without any problem you can just never take it again and so we were given a series of puzzles that we had a good team for uh there was one that required a person to sacrifice all of their strength literally just leaving them with one hit point mm-hmm. uh we also had another where you could get treasure but uh it would require you to sacrifice your feet and your ability to walk which we had a person willing to do and after going through these puzzles we came to a room that was essentially supposed to be like a sand pit trap, but one of the salt bores that we've found again had gotten loose and was turning parts of this trap-filled room into salt. And so we had to quickly get our way through that, but we found out that once we got past the room where the salt bore was, the first guardian of the Trial of Stone was... And so we had to fight both the salt boar and the guardian, who was a jerk who turned invisible when most of the party was already beaten down, and we barely made it without anybody surrendering. And so now we essentially have a save point to let us get into the next part of the Trial of Stone. But it went from, oh, this is something that we want to do as soon as possible, to... Uh, let's wait until we have some more ways to get around puzzles and that sort of thing. Yeah, I was uh, I was both impressed and a little shocked that nobody tapped out, to be honest. Um, because that, that fight, um, which uh, the Salt Boar was, you know, a homebrew creation of mine, and it's literally this boar made of salt, this large boar, um, and so it deals necrotic damage and, um, it can do some other nasty things too. Um, and, um, it, the other guardian actually was, um, I'm going to mess up the pronunciation of this, but it's, uh, it was basically an earth genie, um, a Dao. Um, uh, yeah, no, I, I think I said it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, he has the ability to, um, like move through the earth he could also turn invisible and he pulled a uh really nasty trick on you guys which kind of like was the end of the campaign where he went invisible and then immediately went under the earth to position himself for a sneak attack and i i i believe of cleaver you were the victim uh luke you were the victim of that attack yeah yeah cleaver and i believe mama also got hit luckily cleaver has now transitioned into also being an alchemist which helps uh, the party have some more health care, so to speak. But yeah, Cleaver took a big amount of that hit, but we were able to finally overpower him, but it was a dick of a fight. Yeah, it was nasty. Um, so uh, let, me, let me ask you this, Luke. Do you think that the Trials of Stone are going to lead to another seal? If they aren't, uh, the players are going to try and dethrone God. Well, that is my Wednesday campaign. Um, actually, yeah, no, I, I have an attack and dethrone God campaign that we play on Wednesdays. But yeah, um, I guess you'll have to find out. I, I do think that some people were uh, expecting some sort of bait and switch. Other people are, you know, really hopeful that uh, it leads to a seal. I mean, yeah. if we go through like two more of these, I'm assuming... 
to get all the way to the seal and there isn't a seal or it's like, oh, look, one of the, the salt boar's boss took the seal. It's going to be just really frustrating and disheartening. Well, <laughs> um, uh, oh, no, I've given the GM ideas. Well, no, no, I already know what's at the end of the the three trials of stone, and um, you know, I'm not gonna say anything. But you did confirm that there is three of them. Yeah, well, you know, I I I'm not that innovative when it comes to being a GM, um, but I guess you'll just have to wait and find out and maybe temper some expectations. Um, the real seal was friendship. Yeah. Uh, no, it was the uh, the the appropriately named Dick Kick Room, um, which is was my favorite trap. Someone someone got kicked in the crotch so hard their HP dropped down to one for the remainder of the evening. Um, but we'll talk. No, we we actually won't talk about that trap ever again. Um, what we will talk about is uh, the very special Outlands holiday session. The March of the Penguins, and Yalmir, you got to participate in that. So why don't you tell us about the March of the Penguins? Yeah, so every once in a while, we will just get a mission that is kind of um, a little bit more chill. It's not necessarily about um, uh, progressing, um, you know, the story of the seals or the mythology of the Outlands. It's accompanying penguins on their, um, you know, migratory march to collect food. Um, th- th- that was that was essentially the uh, mission. Um, the party was accompanying these penguins uh, with the help of uh, several crab folk. One of these included, uh, uh, and I don't know if it's been talked about before, but his name is Parm. And he is one of the uh, leaders of the crab folk. Um, kind of just like a giant old gnarly crab guy. Yep, ten foot tall. Yeah, yeah. And and for context, the crab folk had previously been enthralled by the Aboleth. So we yeah. haven't had good experiences with him in the past. Well, I mean, technically, and Christian, you can correct me if I'm wrong, they were never enthralled. They were kind of forced into kind of like a, a slavery of sorts because the Aboleth had uh, uh, an artifact that kind of controlled them. So so right. it, it wasn't like a mental uh, 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 control. It was they were forced to follow what he was saying because he had something they wanted. Yes, they were honor bound to follow, uh, to heed the call of the perfect conch. Um, the perfect conch being this um, ancient artifact that has been passed down through generations of crab folk until it was lost um, by a group of adventurers some at some point in the uh, distant past, uh, and those adventurers were actually enthralled by the Aboleth as the Aboleth was trying to do some army building um, several hundred years ago. And that event actually was what um, uh, preceded the destruction of the city of Untovalara, which I believe we've talked about in the, uh, we, we, we've talked about them both previous episodes mm-hmm. of uh, Tales from the Outlands. 
but yeah, so the so the crab folk were never bad people. They were just kind of um, they they were somewhat hostile to outsiders at first because outsiders were responsible for the loss of the perfect conch. And then um, when the Ablith got loose and um, you know had the perfect conch in their possession, uh, when the Ablith blew upon it, they were honor bound to follow. Um, which led to a fateful encounter in which the party rogue Sisatrix uh, was killed by crab folk during the final battle against the Ablith. So keep all of that context in mind for the March of the Penguins. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the crab folk are kind of, uh, uh, we're, we're on friendly terms after the uh, death of the Ablith. Um, so, uh, uh, the party was working with them, uh, follow or helping these penguins get to kind of um, an area which I, I think you've talked about it before, but the Outlands is kind of uh, overlapping plains. There are, um, you know, uh, places in the Outlands where it's just the regular outlands. And then as you go further into it, you're slowly getting into the elemental plane of water or air or fire or wherever. Yeah, yeah that's very accurate. And this, uh, the, in addition to not only parts of the, basically the outlands, and we, we spoke about this in our pilot episode, is a convergence of the planes or a confluence of the planes. And so occasionally different planes cross over temporarily into the outlands. And this coincided with the March of the Penguins, as it turned out that the Penguins were marching to uh, a, a convergence point with the elemental plane of water. Right. But of course, nothing can be that simple in the <laughs> outlands. So uh, what? Yeah. As, as we're marching towards this area, because as it was explained to us, this was something the penguins needed to do in order to collect enough uh, food stores for the winter. Um, so we're, we're moving towards this area that they are required to go to every single year, um, which just happened to be uh, uh, into the elemental plane of water. With the, uh, with the fact that it's the elemental plane of water, this goes back to our whole Aboleth problem. Evidently, he's not dead. He's still there. So we we found that out. But as as we're uh, uh, you know heading into this area, we're also finding out that one of the um, and I'm going to butcher the name, so I'm not even going to try. Uh, You're referring to Nyaro the hissing wind. Yes, which is one of the um, one of the heralds of kind of the Faerim in kind of the mythology of the uh, Outlands. Um, the Hissing Wind has minions, which are very similar to what it is, uh, which are giant ice geese, which try to stop the penguins and the party from uh, uh, getting to the elemental plane of water. The party was able to dispatch the geese, break the ice that was over the uh, elemental plane of water and allow the penguins to go in to collect their food for the winter. But in doing so, we found out 
that, yeah, the Abolith is not going anywhere, and he knew exactly where we were and where we were going to be at that point in time, which is a little concerning because, you know, again, we've already lost a, a, a party member, a, a player character, um, uh, to to a, a, a permanent death by the Abolith, or the Abolith's actions, I guess I should say. So... He, he is definitely, at this point in time, one of the big bads of the campaign that we faced. And he didn't go away. He's still there. Yeah, I thought it was more understood that he was just banished back to his home plane, because that was part of the whole controversy with the Sahuagin and sending them home. Yeah, I, this was the first, I think, in-campaign in confirmation of it. So Aboleths in D&D mythology... Um, they, they are functionally immortal. They predate the gods. They are primordial creatures um, that predate the gods themselves. And um, when they die on the material plane, their body uh, simply reforms in the elemental plane of water. And so, you know, that's the, the uh, deadly part about Aboleths is that, you know, their plans can last for centuries because they can't actually be killed. Um, you know, so if they, they fail, you know, and they get killed off by a band of, you know, intrepid adventurers, they just come back. <laughs> so yeah, it's a problem, especially when you are living in a place in which the elemental plane of water uh, repeatedly returns to um, the... Uh, you know, repeatedly crosses over. So you think that at one some point that Aboleth is going to make his way back to the Outlands and then just raise more hell. So it's it's one of the it's one of the big like Sophie's choices of the campaign. Um, it, it 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 delights me to no end, to be honest, as as the DM because there is a lot of fierce debate about what to do about the Aboleth problem. So, um, and the Ablet did almost get one of the party members, um, as, as, uh, the Paladin Ulysses, who is a water genasi, uh, was ensnared temporarily by the, um, by the Ablet and dove into the elemental plane of water. And then, um, even though he freed himself of the Ablet's influence, he decided to stay in in a misguided attempt to protect the penguins from the Abolith and almost got the app, like almost, you know, got stuck in the elemental plane of water. Yeah. The, the opening was temporary, right? Yeah. What yeah. sort of fools get stuck in another plane trying to protect an animal? Who, who does something like that? Oh man. If that's not foreshadowing for next episode, I don't know what is. But we'll talk more about that in episode three <laughs> of Tales from the Outlands. Uh, so, Paul, so how how did the March of the Penguins end? Well, uh, fortunately, we saved our paladin and were able to get him back out of the water. Um, but it essentially ended in a cliffhanger where we know we need to be back um, in, I believe, four weeks to... Uh, be there for the return of the penguins. Um, yeah. 
So we'll we'll find out what happens in the second March of the Penguins. Um, you'll find out what happens then in a couple of episodes. Uh, so after that, um, this this takes us. Uh, we we, you know, that kind of got us through the week of Christmas. Um, the Friday group actually skipped a week due to the fact that Christmas fell on a Friday this year. So after the March of the Penguins, it was actually the Sunday group, the Buddy Brigade's turn to go again. And uh, Luke, why don't you tell us a little bit about that misadventure? Yeah, uh, much to Cleaver's chagrin of wanting to do literally anything else, she got outvoted. The party decided to head as far north as they could to find out what would happen and ended up heading to what are called the Step Canyons and we found some interesting things along the way. Uh, there was a weird metal cave that we believe is connected to uh, potentially Mechanus, which is the plane of order with a bunch of robot-like things. But there's a giant eye that would not let us pass there. Frequently mentioned NPC, Ellie Windrow had provided a member of our party with something that we were told would help us to get somewhere, but I don't believe we actually found out what that was used for. No, you did. It oh. prevents you from getting killed by the braided branches. It, it, uh, that's I, right, actually, that's right. I actually was the party member that night. Oh that's yeah, right. you I totally forgot you were on that one too. <laughs> Man. Yeah, well, no. A lot of DD in the last few weeks, man. Yeah, I know. I know. Hey, pandemic, man. Uh, but <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Ellie had provided me with a brooch uh, uh, of the braided branches symbol uh, to wear. Um, obviously, for the meeting that we ended up having with the braided branches. Yeah. Um... We also found a weird hole in the ground that we think might be connected to the underworld or a spirit plane or something of that nature. And then the big thing was we ran into the braided branches at what is called Falcon Shield, which is a big energy barrier that turns on whenever a Faerim is active in the Outlands. It is currently active. And we went and essentially just had a long, awkward conversation with the members of the Braided Branches, one of the members who we are familiar with. Uh, and Ellie also got to meet another Unjanath, who was a member of the Braided Branches, and had long conversations about who she was and got to learn a lot of the things that we discussed in the podcast. And the yeah, last we, should, we should clarify that is uh, Ellie Shay's character, who, if you listen to episode one, obviously has some baggage related to the Unjanath. Not uh, uh, Scout Ellie, Ellie Windrow, uh, the NPC. But um, yeah, that was a delightful, a delightful conversation. Uh, actually, to be honest, that was probably one of my favorite NPC moments of the campaign. It, it was just a long series of awkward conversations between those two. And then the rest of the party is just like, so what are you doing out here? And learning pretty much what we did about the barrier and then being like, well, we didn't get a lot done, so let's head back. I mean, I feel that you guys got a fair amount of important information. None um, of us got cursed, only have one hit point for the rest of the day. Yeah, it was very much a non-combat. We, You guys were actually due to get combat, um, so... Um, 
you know, spoiler, um, there is a, a creature called uh, Orgomets, the Churning Malevolence, that lives in the Step Canyons. Um, and you guys were due to run into it. Um, but it was like going on 11 o'clock by the time that you guys wrapped up with the braided branches. And I was like, mm -hmm. I'm tired. <laughs> yeah, which is 100% valid. We also stumbled onto a relay station for the Clockwork Army that merits more discovery. Yes, that, that's, uh, that was an important one. Um, yeah, so, you know, and uh, the other thing is, and um, I'll, I'll, I'll say this because this is the podcast, the, the, so Falcon Shield was formed uh, over a, a waterfall, which was kind of like modeled after Victoria Falls. But on, north of that waterfall actually is an important location in the lore of the Outlands, uh, the Pit of the Faerim, uh, the physical prison where the Faerim, which are kind of like this overarching threat that looms over the campaign um and that is where they are currently imprisoned but that's Due where to... we that, that's where we found out that that was actually behind the uh, sharn wall correct yes and the 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 pit of the Faerim is protected by the sharn wall which is of course um you know constituted or kept in place due to the seven seals um, so, you know, a pretty important location kind of narrowed down because there are there are multiple groups that are after uh, uh, that that, you know, trying to find that spot. And now now the party knows where it's at. Uh, Ellie got some answers about uh, her past. Not really. Um, and also uh, speaking of uh, things that, you know, like really foundational lore of the Outlands, um, Something that I don't think anyone has really like talked about is Ravella Red, the princess responsible for ending the war between the Unjanath and the Red Kingdom, got a name drop, which is the first time in months that she has been brought up. Yeah, she uh, did. Did uh, from from the conversation we had with the braided branches, didn't we find out that she actually went to the uh, great forest of the Unjanath? Mm -hmm. She is the only person that is allowed to enter the great forest where the Unjanath live without being immediately put to death. Yeah. So it definitely seems to imply that she exists somewhere in the Outlands. And, you know, the braided branches seem to know a thing or two about her as well. Yeah, I, I think the other thing that I took away from that is we knew for a fact that there are now Therum loose in the outlands because in that conversation we had with the braided branches um the of course i can't remember his name but the guy that we talked to nail hammer yes him he told us that uh falcon shield which is the the kind of barrier that, that, that comes into play in the outlands does not activate unless there's uh Pharaoh around and that was the, I think, we knew, we knew at one point in time, or we, we know right now, that there are Faerum at least um, trapped in certain areas, uh, like the Bleeding Willow. But this was kind of the first hint that there is one out there on its own, potentially causing havoc. So I'm going to ask you this question, Paul. 
because uh, I think you know the answer. Where did that Faerun come from? Oh, it totally came from the, uh, uh, what, what is it, the uh, Thundering Plains? Yeah, the plains, the plains of the fields of thunder. Fields of thunder, yeah, yeah. Man. Which which takes us to our wonderful uh, group of doomsday cultists, the Arms of Paradise. That's a that's a man, Paul. This is your first podcast that you've ever recorded because that was like the perfect segue. <laughs> and my good old buddy Cor, Shalmir yes. and Cor have quite the history. Yes, yeah. Um, so I, I guess this is a good time to bring this one up. So the Arms of Paradise, we, we've we've mentioned them in passing. They're a doomsday cult. They're, I don't think that everyone knows that they're a doomsday cult, but they are 100% a doomsday cult seeking out the pit of the Faerim, which they refer to as the Black Walls of Paradise. And uh, they are currently being led, or at least uh, one of their leaders, is Luke's first character, uh, Kor, uh, who <laughs> was transformed into, uh, was go- going through seramorphosis as a mind flayer, you know, becoming a mind flayer, and then basically made a deal with the devil and had his soul replaced uh, with something else. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll throw something else out there for, for you guys. Um, because uh, this was, I, I don't know how good of a job I did. Because you know, I, I feel like, honestly, out of the six sessions that we talked about, this one was the Falcon Shield was probably the most lore heavy of the night. It was very lore heavy. And, um, you know, I, I th- there was a big clue that got dropped out there talking about Falcon Shield. And I believe it was Paul who brought up that the Heralds were starting to be active too um and i think that paul you made a comment about oh well the heralds of the Faerim have been active for months and it's like yeah but this barrier has only been up for a few weeks um but the heralds are also kind of tied to some things that have happened in the campaign and like the heralds didn't just pop up you know they came to the outlands for a reason something triggered their reappearance And I wonder what that could be. <laughs> but we have two more to quickly get through before the rest oh, of the podcast. Jesus Christ, yeah. This yeah. is what happens when you don't record over the holidays. So I guess it's now it's my turn uh, to t- uh, recap. Uh, even though, Luke, you you were participating in this, this terrible, awful session. I but... ended up being a major factor in this terrible, awful session. Uh, so I'm going to take this one from you so I can properly castigate you. Great. The Tuesday group known as the Toon Squad. And Cleaver. With Cleaver, uh, visited the Halls of the Dead, which was this newly discovered location in the Sharn Barrows. Now, the Sharn Barrows are filled with all these ancient graves, but the Halls of the Dead is notable as it was rather recently constructed. Upon entering the Hall of the Dead, the party quickly realized that it had ties to the vampire Galthias, who is Cartram's sire um, and seems to have some history with the black dragon Trixielana. The party, the the Toon Squad made the scantest of surveys of the Hall of the Dead. They went into two rooms, you know, um, faced some wraths, which, um, or wraiths, excuse me, 
um, which thoroughly beat them up, surprisingly so. Wraiths are are a, a are a nasty monster in D anD. d And um, in the course of this, they discovered a brazier made of bloodstone, which the Toon Squad had experienced with a bloodstone statue. Knew that bloodstone was not a good thing, and so Luke, what did the Toon Squad and Cleaver do to that brazier? We wasted a lot of time desecrating that. I believe there were some spells cast to destroy it. Cleaver vomited damage-dealing acid into it for shits and giggles, essentially. Yeah, some people were taking hammers to it. It was great. The Toon Squad never bothered to find out exactly what was inside this Hall of the Dead, and it turned out that someone else was there. And that is how the campaign picked up its latest big bad, Velez of the Void, uh, this powerful mage who uses void magic. And she is one of Golthias's more powerful uh, minions and is actively trying to bring her master back to life. It's really, that's like one of the big questions is what, how do you resurrect a vampire and what do you call that? It, it's more of a question of linguistics more than anything magic related yeah it's yeah it's a, it's a semantical question yeah we pretty much spent too much time dicking around with the bloodstone and then ferris our main alchemist of the party got caught as we were all trying to leave could not come up with a way to talk his way out of it and so cleaver had to step in to prevent Ferris and the rest of the party's death. And so now there is a promise to bring the Black Dragon, who we realized was a goblin NPC in our village named Trixie the entire time. The first NPC of the campaign. So if we don't bring them, 18 people are going to die, which I believe is everybody who was there at the party at the time. And then all of the summons and assistance and things that they had with them yeah well uh, uh, yeah I, no, was 18, I was about to say no Veles is just going to kill everyone that's that's what's going to happen you know she, she's... Was, she was specific about that number so well, but yeah 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 you guys uh, the toon squad is kind of screwed it's great Cleaver uh, loves that situation it certainly sets up a busy January and February. Um, we'll we'll talk more about some of the consequences of that next in our next episode. But let's uh let's end the recaps because you know we are we have well there's Grinach Village, yeah, uh, Grinach Village, and um, why don't we talk about that really quick, uh, Paul? Uh, this was the first D and D session of the outlands in in 2020 it actually took place on new year's day what happened 2021 um oh, well, 2021 yeah can't even get my years right no you're good um well uh uh one of one of the members of our party has been looking for her family and uh it sounded like that this was a good area to try to see if they were there uh so the party uh, decided to uh, go there and check things out. But on our way there, we encountered a massive caravan of the Arms of Paradise. 
as it has kind of been talked about on this podcast, um, being a member of the terror team, (laughs) (laughs) we, we make some, uh, 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 interesting decisions. And the, the decision that we made at that point in time was, uh, we know that we are going to be actively facing the arms of paradise at some point in time. We know that they are actively attempting to, uh, release the Faerun into the Outlands. What can we do to stop them? And the answer was murder everyone and burn the caravan. <laughs> um, and that's that's exactly what we did. <laughs> Good job, Arrow on the CW. Yeah, yeah. But but the the interesting thing was we had one uh, uh, prisoner, potential prisoner. Uh, that we we just were going to try to question and find out what was going on. And our druid, Saffron, who happens to be Christian's wife, um, actually used a, uh, I I can't recall the the exact name of the spell, but essentially uh, she moved the earth around in the ground to drop him into a five-foot hole. Just kind of like a quick little trap. So, you know, we start interrogating him, he starts telling us how happy he is that uh, uh, the outpost was attacked and that the clockwork army killed so many uh, of our own people. And our satyr princess druid. Who I, I literally, when we, Darcy and I came up with this character, <laughs> we literally heard that the, the overarching concept was disaster Disney princess. Who at this point in time in the campaign asks every single person if they want to be her friend. Um, until today, when she suffocated <laughs> the Arms of Paradise prisoner, prisoner of war that we had, um, under pounds and pounds and pounds of soil. Yeah, she buried a man alive. And then we went to the village. <laughs> it, was, it was definitely like, you know, 2021 has been very intense so far. And I should have realized what I was getting myself into this year when my wife, my darling wife, who's one of the sweetest people you'll ever meet, was she literally goes, hey, Hjalmir, can I do a terror team thing? And. Paul was like, yeah, sure, whatever. And she's like, okay, I buried the man alive. And everyone's like, what are you yeah. doing? Cold-blooded murder. Cool. <laughs> oh, and like, so a lot of our other players listened to our different sessions. And they were all losing, losing it in the chat. Like, they're just going nuts. It was definitely a way to start off 2021 so tell us more about this village paul let's move away from the war crimes my wife (laughs) yeah so i mean uh after that we we move on and we head to the village and we start encountering a large herd of goats and again our lovely uh uh, druid satyr princess uh has the ability to speak with him so they they go on and they tell her about you know uh, the the essentially the protector of the woods around there, um, and how great he is and how wonderful he is, 
and it starts getting really creepy um, because it sounds like he's a satyr as well. So we kind of just ask the goat herd, where can we find the village? And they lead us there. Once we make it to the village, they go away. And uh, we start asking around about our, our other party members' family. And it just so happens there's a ton of them here. But they are very happy being here. Um, At, uh, out of curiosity, which party member is this? That would this be is Selman. Selman. Yeah. Selman so, the gnome. Uh, a forest yeah. gnome who... I believe part of her uh, uh, reason for being a member of the Outlands Exploratory Company was, and Christian, you probably should. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it, so, it, didn't her family ask to, to go to the great forest where the Unjanath were? So her family lived in one of the three great forests, one of the two that were not located in the Outlands. And as part of the peace treaty, the Unjanath basically retreated to these three great forests, and in the process, they expelled all of the people who actually lived there. Um, and so the gnomes went into the Outlands. Uh, Selman's family went into the Outlands to hope to um, entreat um, the, uh, the the Unjanath in order to get their home back. Um, which, you know... Given the context, what we found out about at uh, during Falcon Shield, uh, both poorly for them. But uh, some of the they've uh, Selman has since discovered that some of her family members were like waylaid at different points in time in the Outlands, and a, a decent chunk of them, um, nearly a dozen, um, ended up in this strange halfling village, uh, seemingly. Um, you know, seemingly integrated in with this, like, halfling village. And they, they appeared to be pretty happy that they were there. Um, yeah. You know, it was the, uh, you know, three three square meals a day, possibly more, considering it was a halfling village, and a uh, place to lay their head at night. And that was better than they had when they were, you know, displaced from, from where they were living. Mm-hmm. Um, so... They, they were happy, they were good, but in, in talking to them, we also found out that uh, there was going to be a festival, uh, a, a, a festival to the, uh, Christian, I'll let you... The Horned Moon Festival. The Horned Moon Festival, where a female of the village would essentially uh, become the, the village champion... And uh, it, 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 w- it wasn't necessarily considered like a sacrifice, even though our party ended up thinking it was a sacrifice where you're turned into a goat. Um, you guys immediately were like, yeah, no, this is definitely someone's dying here. Yeah, yeah. But it, it was seen as kind of like an honor in the village to, to be the champion. But then you were like just never seen again. And the goat herd surrounding the village just continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, especially after every uh, horn goat festival. So, one of the things that, that, that kind of happened, you know, we, we're learning this information and then everybody is like, okay. You know, we, we know what we need to know. We know what's going on. Let's all go to bed. 
Um, our druid, Saffron, who is our uh, uh, Disney disaster princess, um, was visited in the night by uh, uh, the protector of the uh, Goatwood, um, which is the surrounding area. And needless to say, without you know going into too much detail, um, he is very, very interested in Saffron and definitely wants her to be around for when the uh, festival takes place. And there was a showing of that by several dozen white roses and a uh, essentially an, a, a flute, a pan flute that, that probably could have been seen as an artifact. Um, As it was made by uh, uh, wood that used to exist in the Feywild, but had long since gone extinct. Yeah. So that was a um, very kind of creepy mission. Uh, But we know we have to come back. We know we have to come back. One of the things that we were promised was uh, information if we helped them prepare for the festival. And... Of course, Selman is still very interested in reuniting with her family and bringing them all back together. So what's kind of funny about Granach Village and the Great Goat of the Woods is so after that session, and I did, you know, I, I should say for, you know, those of you concerned that I was being, you know, creepy to my wife, I did ask her permission uh, before the session started. Um, like I approached her, I was like, okay, um, this is sort of what I'm thinking, you know, is going on. If you're uncomfortable with it, I can change it. Um, and she was, she was cool with it when I like kind of explained the gist of it. And it, it was, it was supposed to be unsettling, but not necessarily sexual, um, or romantic in nature, but it was really funny. So afterwards, um, like the session and like, my unfortunately, uh, Darcy, Darcy and I, we have a seven month old son. And so like in the middle of this dream sequence, um, the, the seven month old wakes up. And so Darcy has to take care of the baby. And, and so like, we kind of like lost some of the impact of that. But, uh, afterwards, uh, like when Darcy and I were getting ready to go to bed, she's like, you know, I don't know. Like, I think Saffron might be into the great go to the woods. And I'm like, really? She's like, Yeah. Like, she knows he's kind of creepy, but, you know, she'd be okay. Like, you know, she's kind of interested in it, too, because he's powerful. She can use that. I'm like, wow, we are just getting all sorts of just hidden wrinkles into Saffron's personality. After committing a murder earlier that night. Yeah. You know, that's like a cleaver move there. Yeah, so uh, we'll, we'll find out more about the Great Go of the Woods in the coming weeks as the Horned Moon Festival will take place on February 12th or 11th. Uh, it coincides with the second new moon of the year. So we've talked a lot. We, you know, like I said, uh, we, we, this, this, this episode is going to run a little long because we covered six D&D sessions that took place over the holidays. Um, but let's let's talk a little bit. We we, uh, we do three things during every episode, and so let's do our deep dive and talk a little bit about the lore of the Outlands. And this week we're going to talk about uh, Falcon the Spirit Lord. 
Um, and, um, you know, we've, we've, we've mentioned Falcon. The reason why Falcon was chosen was because he, now Hjalmir has a direct connection to Falcon. And also we, uh, the party encountered Falcon shield, which is this barrier of radiant energy, uh, over the, you know, over the course of the last few weeks. Um, so, um, Paul, do you do you want to talk a little bit about Falcon? Because you know, I feel like the the War of the Outlands works better when players talk about it, and I kind of like fill in the blanks. Yeah, I mean, um, from what we know, Falcon uh, was part of kind of the the he he was kind of the main uh, uh, god of the Outlands pantheon. Um, he. I don't want to say, uh, in my mind, I see this, uh, at least in, in the current direction we're going, in my mind, it definitely brings up a picture of, like, Odin from Norse mythology. Um, but uh, that, that's at least kind of the way I see it. But but we have a, a kind of a, a, a pantheon of gods of the Outlands. Um, he's kind of the leader of it. You know, his son Kord is part of it. Um, he has a, 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 a daughter uh, uh, who is one of the Windronas, which is uh, uh, one of the founding members of the Unjanath. Um, and oh, that's, that's a new one to me. Uh, it's, 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 it's buried in the Wikipedia. Um, but I, I was about to say, that's, that's not widely known unless you're really paying attention. Yeah, because uh, uh, the daughter... Uh, Cord, my understanding, because again, we have a, a cleric who is a worshiper of Cord, who is the son of Falcon, um, but Cord never received his father's armor. No. It was the daughter that received the armor, who was the Windrona, who was the founder of the Unjanath. Yes, and she was, and she was the mother of Elatrula Windrona, who we talked about last week. Right. Um, uh, yeah. So, so Falcon is one of like we when we made uh, the Outlands. I was kind of inspired. The Outlands. A lot of the Outlands is kind of inspired by bits of the the Greyhawk campaign setting, which was the campaign setting made by Gary Gygax, the uh, one of the creators of Dungeons and Dragons. And the yeah, Greyhawk was his home campaign. Um, and so I I kind of like dug into his lore. Um, and pulled out some pieces, Falcon being one of those, and Cord and Atroa, uh, which is his godly daughter, because, you know, uh, Julna Wendrona, who received the Thunderplate and was the founder of the Unjanath, you know, is, is a demigod, um, you, know, it's, you know, so mortal, basically. Um, and there are fi- a total of five actual gods in the Pantheon, um, Atroa, Cord, Falcon, um, and, um, uh, Phyton is the fourth one that we know of. And there is one other God who is more known for their absence. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll dig into that on another episode. Um, so, uh, they, they are kind of like the gods who established the Sharn, um, which is the, the first, not, yeah, I would say the first culture of the Outlands. And um, and as we alluded to earlier this episode, Falcon died 
Um, you know, he is a dead god. Um, and he died in a battle against the uh, against an entity known as Barum Barum, uh, also known as the Quake Hoof, which is a, a stag made of shadow and lightning. So yeah, so and and we've seen bits of Falcon uh, elsewhere in the campaign. Not only did a group see Falcon shield uh, last week, but uh, multiple groups visited Falcon's uh, home in the elemental plane of air, as Falcon has been depicted almost kind of like an angel, you know, a big broad-chested dude with uh, like angelic wings and always carrying a bow. Yeah, so what what are your guys' impressions of Falcon so far in the campaign? As he's he's probably the god that's gotten talked the most talked about the most in this campaign. It's, it's interesting because I don't think, well, Core has his own connections to other things, but wasn't necessarily a religious character. And Cleaver has more of a culture as opposed to any gods that she believes in so it's interesting having these very segmented pantheons and belief systems in a world where there are actual like validations to them directly Mm -hmm. i mean i i guess the way that i i would look at it because i mean i definitely came into this campaign planning on playing my character as you know a dwarf's dwarf, you know, a, a worshiper of Moradin, you know, worrying about uh, uh, the mountains and stone and, you know, just very, I don't want to say, say stereotypical, but that's the only word I can think of. Very Gimli-esque. Yeah. The the quintessential dwarf. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but in what we've gone through so far in having a cleric in the party whose name is Solstice, who is a worshiper of Cord, who is, again, one of the uh, children of Falcon. Um, it, it, I feel like character, uh, other characters aside, we're slowly getting drawn into this uh, deeper and deeper. And, and part of that, because again, as I, as I mentioned, you know, my, my character was, had, no intent to, to be a part of any of that. Um, but when we went to re- uh, retrieve the, the uh, Thunderplate from the bank in, in the uh, ruined Unjanath city, um, I feel like my character is now slowly getting tied to the uh, uh, history and the mythology of the Outland. Um, you're taking a character that, that doesn't necessarily believe in something and you kill him. You kill him in, in a ritualistic fashion <laughs> in the same way that the, uh, 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 you know, chief God of, uh, of the Sharn and the Unjanath died. Um, that's going to have an impact. That's going to have an impact on somebody and how they're feeling and what they do. And how they, you know, perceive the area around them. Because, again, this is not, you know, uh, uh, this is not where Hjalmir is from. This is very much a foreign land. But I feel like all of our characters, in a certain way, 
are getting pulled more and more into the mythology of this place. I, I do think that is fascinating, considering the sort of opposition that Hjalmir had against Kor and the sort of relationship between the two. See, (laughs) 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 this is a, I'm concerned this is getting ready to turn into a therapy session. Um, The relationship just because I, obviously people listening to this are probably not going to necessarily know uh, uh, the history between Luke's original character, Kor, and my character, Hjalmir, uh, we had, good lord, was that like the first or second mission? That that was, I think, the s- second or third. Okay, yeah. it was early. It was mm-hmm. very, very early. And um, Luke's character, acting in character, um, attacked somebody that we had been working with uh, uh, to, to fight... A, a demon, a monster. And um, that was that was probably one of the times that I went a little heavy on the uh, role-playing in, uh, uh, in this. <laughs> and, it was intense in a good way. <laughs> and I didn't time it, but rumor is it was like a 30-minute rant. Yeah, it was. <laughs> And I remember uh, we were using the, um, you know, Zoom had the the uh, video up for uh, Christian as the DM. And I remember as I was like starting to wrap it up, uh, uh, just like berating Core about loyalty and how dare he and how I would never trust him again because he betrayed somebody that was fighting with us. Um, I remember looking at Christian and just seeing his mouth hanging open and, and nobody said a word. It was just silence. So the, the additional <laughs> context here was, you know, like I've known Paul for years and I've, I've also known Luke for years, but, you know, never have the two crossed paths before this campaign. And so, you know, like, you know, and like I said, like Paul, Paul is one of my dearest friends and, uh, you know, I had just started up the second night of D&D in this campaign. And, you know, there was a bunch of people like one of our uh, one of our players. It was his first session ever, like playing D&D ever. And so Paul, who, you know, I, I, I hope I'm not getting too personal by saying this. Paul is a lawyer in his day job, you know, <laughs> goes all barrister on us. And um just just delivers a, a a closing argument for all time and i'm i'm one just like oh my god like these are the moments that you dream of as a dm <laughs> and also oh my god none of these people are ever going to want to play dnt with me ever again well <laughs> so we've, we've scared we've scared this poor person off um you know who's this is his first game of dnt he doesn't he doesn't know what he's doing and I say this lovingly, like, you know, he, he, he will be the first to admit he didn't know what he was doing. He thought he was playing as a warlock and he was actually playing as a sorcerer. Um, and, um, uh, and then, yeah, that's what you walk into is just absolute it, it, glorious insanity. 
It is the stuff that I love. And the best part was, Core at the time had no idea what he had done. So it's like the woman yelling at the cat meme, except an angry dwarf, the rest of the party behind her, and then just Core, this pale, sickly looking, sunburnt goth, being like, What's going on here? <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons, everybody. Oh, man. So, you know, this is a good way to segue as, as you know, let's, let's let's talk a bit about Hjalmir, uh, Paul's character. You know, we've talked about enough about, you know, stogy old Falcon, the spirit lord. But, you know, Hjalmir, you know, Hjalmir is a fascinating character, both in the in just in terms of he, he is the quintessential dwarf, as we mentioned before. But he's also like, you know, was one of the formative parts of this campaign as a whole. Um, and in terms of what what Paul wanted to do with that character and how that kind of opened up the campaign as a whole. So, Paul, why don't you talk a bit about Hjalmir, you know, what his motivations are and what has he done in the Outlands to date? Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, I, I was a part of this campaign almost by accident. Um, I think you had already had like one session with what would be the terror team. Um, and I think I, I, I think I just sent you a text message about uh, uh, just asking about how Darcy was doing with uh, the pregnancy or something. Yeah. So this was, this was about a month into the campaign. Uh, my son, uh, my, my youngest son was, had literally been born. Um, so I was up at like four o'clock in the morning or something, or it was either really late at night or really early in the morning. And I was actually working out of the hospital and Paul, who, you know, I hadn't spoken to in a, in a hot minute, you know, texted me and was like, Hey, you know, just wanted to say, you know, cause I think you congratulated me on the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Birth of our, our youngest. And so I like mentioned, I was like, yeah, man we're in a pandemic. You should come and play and, you know, <laughs> join up with our D and D campaign again. Um, because Paul had dropped out for like personal reasons. And, um, you know, that group, uh, was, was the terror team. You know, we, we, you know, uh, the same people that Paul played with in the first D and D campaign that we played together, you know, that, that was that, 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 that group is the terror team with one addition. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, so you asked me if I wanted to play and I was like, uh, yeah, absolutely. I would love to. And I think you, uh, told me that, it, uh, it was like, Oh, we play in like two days. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what led to Hjalmir being kind of the stereotypical dwarf. Um, I remember asking you what, what role in the party do do you need filled? And you were like, well, we don't really have a tank. Um, Barbarian's a fun class. And so <laughs> I rolled a Mountain Dwarf Barbarian because they get the uh, plus two to strength and plus two to constitution. And um, I have like the vaguest uh, non-committal backstory available uh, uh, where essentially... Uh, Hjalmir is is approaching being like a middle-aged dwarf uh, who was one of the primary uh, 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 
clan crafters for his clan, but kind of got tired of fighting other people's wars and, and uh, kind of got tired of putting himself in a situation where, you know, he's, he's going to battle and is expected to uh, uh, essentially follow orders in, in killing uh, children and women and the, the elderly. And, you know, he had a bad experience and kind of packed up all his shit and took off to the Outlands because he wanted to kind of create a better, a better clan, a better way of life. And that's why he left. He didn't go for, you know, uh, uh, power he didn't go for for prosperity he went there to kind of create a better life for himself and those those people that would end up being around him nobody's ever asked that which is interesting so that that's way more i think about my character than anybody probably knows i'd never do that and i'm your dm <laughs> I, th I thought i sent it to you but who knows I, you, you, i'm sure you did i i have 18 of these things so right, you right, know. Right. even um, more considering deaths <laughs> that's true <laughs> but um yeah i mean once once he made it to the outlands he kind of um fell into a position that he was comfortable with and and when he made it to the outpost um, I remember one of the first things I asked Christian was, is there uh, a forge? And Christian's like, well, yeah. And I asked, is there a blacksmith at the outpost? And there wasn't. So quickly, I kind of claimed that position and the, the uh, building as my own. And really kind of started focusing on crafting better weapons, crafting things that are going to make the outpost uh, safer and better. Um, and really just kind of, I don't know, uh, uh, trying to start something that in character, my character would feel proud of. Because it, it was something that he knew he could do. So that, that, that's kind of how he ended up there. That's kind of what he ended up doing. Um, yeah, I mean, in kind of just explaining the character and obviously I, you know, you, you can always stop me if I'm talking too much. <laughs> I mean, no. we're talking about your character. <laughs> obviously you have opinions on him. Yeah, true, but it, it, you know, it's one of those where it's like, I, I hate talking about myself or my character, but, well, um, you know, I'll go ahead. No, no. Uh, I'd like to hear your opinion, Christian. <laughs> well, what I was going to say was, you know, I feel that you wanting to, like, take ownership of the Forge, you know, really expanded the Outlands campaign. So I, I just looked it up um, while you were talking about Yalmir, and we'd only played four sessions prior to you joining the campaign. And so you were, you not only were you the first, like, addition to the campaign, which you know, was kind of set up like, okay, we can add players into this campaign. Um, but you wanting to take ownership of the Forge, you know, 5e, so Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition, is not a game that has crafting. It is not a game which has, like, 
monster parts and loot and magic items and things like that. I mean, it has magic items, but you don't craft them. You can't improve on your weapons and stuff like that. And with you taking ownership of the forge, that, and uh, I say the word forced loosely, because this is something that I love doing. Um, but that forced the campaign to really address all the inadequacies of 5th edition. And, you know, we came up with, you know, a, a, a ever-evolving system for a lot of this stuff. You know, um, because that's when we started to formalize downtime and um, uh, ex exploration rules um, came in. Uh, we had done exploration rules for one week prior to you coming in. And so that's really what set this campaign down the route, you know, that it goes on and turned it into a really unique campaign. And your arrival and your decision, like, hey, I want to make weapons. And you've made some cool weapons. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, your 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 great axe is a fire axe. It does fire damage instead of slashing damage. Right. Um uh the you know, there's uh Dr. Roboto's Or of War, which, you know, I, I don't even remember what the hell that does, to be honest. But it does uh, something. Same, same as um, uh, with uh, Solstice, being a worshiper of Kord, um, we we ended up uh, deciding early on that I could figure out what the enchantment would be to uh, cause the damage to be lightning damage instead of just regular bludgeoning damage. For yeah. Solstice's Warhammer and Doctor Roboto's Or of War. Yeah, and you know, like I feel like you know that desire to push the boundaries of Fifth Edition because you know my campaign, the first campaign that me and Paul were in together was a Pathfinder campaign, and Pathfinder is like you know three point five on steroids. It's you know. So all those crafting rules and all that customization stuff is all in place. And, you know, all that got stripped out 5th edition for, for very valid reasons. And don't get me wrong, like, you know, I think that benefits the game in a lot of ways. But, you know, there's also a lot of us, and this campaign is really built on trying to really dig into the 5th the edition and trying to pull more out of it than what most people take out like a normal fifth edition campaign. And, and, you know, that's, that's because of Fjallmir. So, you know, every piece of customized equipment that, you know, appears in the Outlands, you know, that was made possible because, you know, Fjallmir showed up and wanted to that you wanted that to be your character's thing. Um, and, you know, even that, that even expanded into, you know, uh, Luke's second character, Cleaver, you know, um, with with the meals, you know, because me and Luke had talked about, like, coming up with, like, meals that provide benefits to those people who eat it. We never quite got around to that. I, I set it up in Cleaver's last mission, and then something happened to Cleaver. <laughs> yeah, that's great. We'll, <laughs> like, be, we'll see you in a week for... All of that fun talk. <laughs> but, you know, like uh, a lot of the campaign is built around people saying, I want to take ownership of that thing. And I'm never going to tell them no. Like we have a player who's just taken ownership of the the tavern, you know, that exists in, in the outpost. You know, we, we, we have players that are interested in different 
bits of it, you know, the, the, um, the cleric that we've been talking about a lot, Solstice, you know, he wanted to build a, a, um, a shrine to his God cord. Um, and we've, we've built that over time. Um, and you know, a lot of that customization was because Paul wanted to make a forge and wanted to have like, let's figure out some sort of mechanical benefit to having that forge. Um, so let me ask you this, Paul, um, what do you think, where do you think Yalmir's story arc is taking him? That is an interesting question. Um, as I kind of mentioned, I, I, I feel like the, uh, the death of, experience that he faced in in the uh retrieving the thunderplate um i think that's pulling him closer to what's happening in the outlands because again as i said you know he he didn't go there to to get the seals he didn't go there to get immensely wealthy he went there just to create a better life for himself and for the people that he cared about um you know, I don't want to say that I, I, I feel like at this point in time, uh, our cleric Solstice, who was supposed to be the one to get the Thunderplate initially, and Hjalmir, uh, both being dwarves, he's a hill dwarf, I'm a mountain dwarf, um, I feel like at this point in time, they are character-wise being pulled closer and closer in what they need to do to protect the Outlands, if that makes any sense. I don't think it does. But um, I, I feel like we're two sides... We're, we're, almost in my mind, we're, we're working towards being like two sides of the same coin um, um, regarding what needs to occur in the Outlands and, and you know, what needs to occur to kind of follow through on, on the stories that we know have already taken place in, in the mythology of the Outlands. That was a bunch of gibberish. I know. No, no. I, 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 <laughs> you, you gave me a lot to think about. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and I mean, the shorter answer too is, you know, I, I think character wise, um, uh, there is a very big desire, especially following the death of, uh, Cicitrix, to protect those around him. And, um, Luke can attest to this. I, I, I'm pretty sure that the, uh, uh, majority of the characters that are not on the terror team, uh, see Hjalmir as just kind of like the grumpy grandpa or uncle, uh, yeah. that doesn't let anybody have any fun. Uh, but he's seen a lot of death. He's seen a lot of people that he cares about die. Mm -hmm. And, and at the heart of that, it's not because he doesn't want people to be happy. It's because he doesn't want people to experience the loss that he's had. And, you know, with the, uh, uh, clockwork army attack, his number one concern was the safety of the, uh, goblin village because he was, And and revenge. Yes. But, because initially, early on in the story, he was so tied to the goblin refugees coming to the outpost. 
That was his number one concern. Hjalmir's, Hjalmir's title is, you know, the Goblin King. Uh, in, in the context of that, you know, the, the goblins do do have bestowed upon him a title. Ceremonial, of course. He's, he's you know, the goblins will do what the goblins do. Um, one of the things that I like about Hjalmir, and, you know, I really think that uh, this is a credit to you, Paul, um, is that I think more so than any other uh, person in the campaign, um, you know, I think that every other player can say what their character's relationship is with Hjalmir. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that, you know, that that's a credit, you know, to both your involvement in the campaign, because you, you've had, you know, the not unique opportunity because everyone can play with anyone, but, you know, um, you, you've taken advantage of the opportunities to play with the other groups. And, you know, I think that because of that, everyone can point to like, and they, they can say like, this is what my character thinks about Yalmir. And I don't think that there's anyone else in the campaign, uh, especially, especially after the events of last, uh, last Sunday, uh, uh, that, uh, uh, that, that that can brag, you know, that can, you know, be, there's no other player that, you know, has a character like that. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that's that, I think that's really cool. And I think that's what the Outlands is all about. I never thought of it that way, but that's a, uh, a very, very interesting way to look at it. That's a, that's a very cool one. Well, um, I think that's a, a decent spot um, to end tonight's episode. This one went a little long because, once again, we had a lot to cover. So thank you very much. Uh, if you made it all the way to the end, thank you very much for listening. Um, Paul, uh, is there anything that you want to shout out? Uh, I know that you don't have the social media presence that me and Luke do, but is there anything, any any closing remarks that you'd like to say? Oh, wow. Uh, the only thing I would say is, yes, I, I have zero internet presence. You're not going to find me out there. Um, but the other thing I would say is, you know, uh, these are incredibly trying times um, during the pandemic and during the, the current political climate in our country. And I cannot express enough how important having just this kind of break from reality has been for me and my own mental health and and for folks that you know are having a hard time uh, uh, are, are very concerned with what's going on you know my my recommendation try some dungeons and dragons <laughs> <laughs> that that is very very true um, Luke uh, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at, at Coltreg, that's K-O-L-T-R-E-G, or at Luke Hare, L-U-K-E-H-E-R-R dot com, where you can find all of my podcasts, including Multiversal Q, which probably by the time this has gone up, uh, the last episode of that will have posted. Uh, I'm also just doing other things. I have a Pokemon 5e podcast over at Established Property Playhouse, if you like Pokemon and d and you can find my various writings about Dungeons & Dragons at comicbook.com, which is a CBS Viacom site. 
Um, and uh, just a, I don't know when exactly this article will get, uh, uh, this episode will get posted, but uh, you can find out about D&D's next book, which uh, the official announcement comes on January 12th. And uh, you can find all that information at comicbook.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Seahoffer, Seabus. I talk a lot about the Outlands. Um, so that about wraps it up for this episode of Tales from the Outlands. Uh, keep on adventuring and we will see you soon. Keep exploring. There's always more to find.